Hey, this is Brian with the weekly Mid-City Vineyard teaching and conversation. Hey, if you want to learn a little bit more about Mid-City Vineyard, check us out online, midcityvineyard.org, Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard Church, and on Instagram at Mid-City Vineyard. This weekend, we kicked off a new series entitled, I've Always Wondered, Questions About the Faith. And so what we did is we asked people in our community of faith to submit any questions that they might have about the Christian faith. And so we got about, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 really fantastic questions. Everything from why does a good God allow suffering to what's the purpose of prayer, if God might know everything, questions about same-sex relationships, and all kinds of other great things. So this is going to be a pretty fun series, and I just want to tell you up front, I'm not looking to uh, give you the answer to any of these questions. I'm just looking to give you some possibilities. I will talk about how I see some of these things and how I have come to my decisions in my own journey of faith. Uh, but I want you to think for yourselves and just kind of listen and, and decide what might work for you when it comes to the answers to some of these questions. In this first one, though, we're looking at the scriptures. How should one or how could one read and interpret the scripture? Because ultimately, a lot of uh, the decisions we make come back to how we understand and interpret Scripture. So we're going to look at that this week. That will be our conversation. I want to say uh, we hope you enjoy this and much peace to you. Let's head on over. I am super excited about this, uh, what we're going to talk about over the next, right now it looks like it's like eight or ten weeks. So this idea of I've always wondered, let me read you some of the questions that we are going to discuss, because these are your questions, these are the things that have come in. Uh, if God knows everything, then why do we pray? Uh, if God is good, why is there suffering, especially children, why do children suffer? What about same-sex relationships? Are heaven and hell real, or are they figurative? How does the great flood fit into the narrative of God reconciling all of creation to himself and other moments of God's wrath in the Bible? Let's see. Does everyone go to heaven? What about Muslims? What about really bad people? Does God ever regret anything? It seems in the flood narrative that God regretted making people. If so, what does that mean for God being all-knowing and all-powerful? What happens when we die? So these are all easy questions uh, that you guys have come up with. So we'll, we'll discuss these over the next couple of weeks. And here's where we decided to start today. Because I think that this, if we don't start here today, then we can't really answer any of the other questions. And the, the question today is, how is one supposed to actually read and interpret the scriptures. Because most of the time we try to find our answers to these questions from the scriptures. But how you interpret the scripture will actually determine many times what kinds of answers you come to for these particular questions. So we start with a conversation this week about the scripture. And there's a very good chance over the next couple of weeks that I will say something, and you will say, I never heard it taught that way. I don't know if I believe that that way, and that's okay. 
Uh, it, it really is, okay, we don't have to agree on everything. And one of the big reasons is we understand that we probably, in many ways, interpret the scripture differently. And that's okay. You have to decide how you want to interpret the scripture. And you also need to know that you are probably in good company. However you determine that you want to interpret the scripture, you're in good company because over the last 2,000 years, people have been, been interpreting the scripture differently. People who are Christ followers have been interpreting it differently. So I'm going to give you some thoughts on how I interpret the scripture and how others might interpret the scripture. And then you have to go and play around with it and figure out what you think about those things. The Bible, the reason we look at this is because the Bible is considered to be Christians' sacred text. And by sacred, what I mean is it's the collection of works that we use when it comes to uh, trying to understand the divine, when it comes to trying to understand how life works. And so when we talk about these things over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about suffering, we'll talk about prayer, we'll talk about God's character, we'll talk about same-sex relationships, morality, heaven, hell, all of these things, and we'll try to look to the scripture and see how we might look through some of this. Now, here's the first thing we have to remember. Whenever we read the scripture, we have to understand that the scripture, there is context to the scripture. There was a particular time in history and a particular people that the scriptures at that time were written to and written for. If we don't understand context, if we don't understand history, then we're probably going to miss a great deal of what is trying to be said. So think of it this way. Imagine for a moment if I were to write in a notebook or a journal uh, the following entry. Now listen to this. And then we're going to go through and, and see if we can interpret it in a minute. I ran into my friend Sam yesterday. It's been close to 25 years since we last saw one another, so there was a lot for us to catch up on. I told, I told Sam about uh, my wife and how we now have five kids, four boys and one princess. And we talked about life and we talked about kids and religion and politics. And he asked me what I thought about all of the wars that we'd been involved in over the last two decades. He was talking about uh, how those extremists flew those birds into those buildings which sent us on a wild goose chase looking for non-existent WMDs. And I told him, I said, somebody would have had to be smoking a lot of grass. <laughs> somebody would have to be smoking a lot of grass to make a mistake that big thinking those WMDs were there. And he said, oh, they all smoke that, that grass, but I, I assured him that it's okay because they don't inhale. And he mentioned how great it is that Twitter doesn't have an edit function because now all the Donald's messed up tweets get locked into the cloud forever. And the conversation lightened up a little bit once we turned toward our beloved boys. We both agreed that that year hell froze over in 2009 was one of the best years of our lives. The sight and the sound of pigs flying in uh, the, the hometown, the best thing that happened to our amazing city, especially after that crazy woman had come to town a couple years earlier and tried to drown us. But everyone knows that in NOLA, you might be able to knock us down but you can't keep us down. After all, soul is waterproof. And now we're hoping that the pelicans will take us to the promised land as we climb on the shoulders of Mount Zion, hopefully taking us all the way. Okay. So that's written in a notebook somewhere. And in 300 years, some young girl in her 20s stumbles across that journal. And she opens it up. 
and she reads about it. She doesn't know anything about New Orleans. In 300 years, New Orleans won't exist anymore. The, 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 the waters will have washed this place away. She knows nothing about the culture. She knows nothing about this country. She knows nothing about the way we see the world. She finds this reading, this writing. So what does she understand? Okay, let's start at the top. My wife and I, we had four, four boys and one princess. I mean, do we really have a princess? I mean, is she a princess? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. No. Extremist flying birds. What is that? Planes. Flying birds in the buildings. WMDs. What are WMDs? that? Smoking grass, what is that? Yeah? Not inhaling, is that even funny and why? <laughs> the president said that. What about, what about the Donald? What about tweets? What is that? You okay, Lisa? What about, what about tweets? Someone in 300 years? What about the cloud? What does that mean? Someone in 300 years. I don't know. Well, who are our beloved boys? Would she know that? Hell? Did hell really freeze over? What about pigs flying? It's just a ridiculous saying. Was it really the best day of our lives when the Saints won the Super Bowl? Or is that just a way that we talk? I'm hopeful that that's just a way that we talk. Crazy woman? Katrina? Floods? What about the pelicans? Well, we've already referred to birds as planes, haven't we? Yeah. And now we're referring to pelicans. Those are birds. What's the promised land in this context? Playoffs. Playoffs? <laughs> Just the playoffs. Maybe a winning season? Mount Zion? That's an actual thing. But what? Are, okay, I think you get the point. 300 years from now, she picks it up, she reads it. She has no idea. And what, what is it enough for her to just say, well, I can just read this and figure it out on my own? Or would she need context? Would she need other literature? Would she need to study? Would she need other accounts? To, Of course, she would. So context makes all the difference in the world. So when we read, when we read the scripture, there's something that we have to understand. Context matters. History matters. Coming to the text in a particular way matters. And when we begin to understand these things, we can start to interpret and read the, the scripture a little bit more effectively. So here's what we have. The scripture right here is actually not one book. It's 66 books written by more than 40 different authors. So you have 40 authors, 66 books, written over a 2,000 year span. This is not a book. <laughs> this is a bunch of writings that have been put together, written over a 2,000 year span. Even context in a 2,000 year span, from the first book that was ever written to the last book that was ever written, the context is completely worlds apart different. It's written in Hebrew, it's written in Aramaic, it's written in Greek, it's, it's different languages that have been used. This book, listen carefully, this book is literally filled with stories about monsters, sea beasts, erotic poetry, 
stories of warriors and armies. There are fortune tellers. There are betrayals. There are Armageddon-like floods. There is history. There are myths. There are people that come back from the dead. It's filled with, with uh, talking animals. It's an interesting book. It reads more like The Lord of the Rings and something by J.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis than any type of actual historical history book that you're going to read. So we've got to understand and start to think through how might one read this. So let me give you just a couple of thoughts here. For the first 3,500 years, and that's, so it's, it, it was written for 2,000 years up until, so we would say from 2,000 BCE up until around 90 AD, it was being written. And then for the next 1,500 years after that, the Bible was read a particular way. It was studied by people who knew history and context. These would be priests. It was studied by priests, it was taught, and it was learned in community like this for the first 3,500 years. And then 500 years ago, something crazy and new and different happened. 500 years ago, so this is in recent, you know, if the, if the earth is 14 billion years old, then it's been, <laughs> this is recent, 500 years ago. The Bible was translated into a new language for the first time ever. It was translated into Latin. At the same time, the printing press was developed. When the printing press was developed, all of a sudden, the Bible was translated into the language of the people, and the Bible was printed mass print, so that now, in a, in a good way, lots of people could get their hands on the scriptures. Now, before that, people could not get their hands on the scriptures, so the priest would have their hands on the scripture, they would read the scripture, they would study the scripture, they would teach the, the community of faith, the community of faith would wrestle with it together and learn from it. Then everyone could have their own copy come 500 years ago, which in many ways is really good because now everyone gets a chance to experience and to read the scripture. So it led to more people reading the scripture, which is really good, but it also led, 500 years ago, this is brand new, to an individualistic interpretation of the scripture. It became very popular at the time of Martin Luther to say, anyone can read the scripture, anyone can read the scripture, and if you have the Holy Spirit, just you and the Holy Spirit, then you can interpret what the scripture says. That is a very Protestant, very 500-year-old argument, one that personally... I would argue and say that that's not the best way to read the scripture. It's not the way scripture has been intended. Not just for you to go by yourself and to read it and to say, well, clearly the Bible says right here this. That would be like that young girl was saying, clearly birds fly into buildings and destroy entire buildings. Like pelicans don't fly into buildings and destroy buildings. They destroy themselves. On top of that, Martin Luther comes up with this other idea called sola scriptura, where basically Luther was saying all you need to understand how life works and all you need, your basis for all authority is just the scripture. And what that did 500 years ago is it led people down this pathway of saying the Bible has all the answers for life. Marriage problems go to the Bible. Financial problems, go to the Bible. 
any kind of thing, go to the Bible. We just have to go to the Bible. And the Bible is the final word. So whatever the Bible says, that's what God has to say. The Bible, 500 years ago, was determined by many to be without error. It was supposedly the divine revelation of God, which ultimately leads to things like this. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You might have heard that, that phrase before. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. But is that true? Or we find ourselves in a particular situation in life, and so we say, well, let's just see what the Bible has to say, as if the Bible is going to make sure that we have the exact right answer to whatever that thing is that day. Now, this is a popular way, primarily in evangelical churches, of seeing the Scripture. Now, if you didn't grow up in an evangelical church, if you grew up Catholic, or if you grew up in uh, some type of mainline uh, Methodist or Presbyterian type of church, you, you wouldn't have ever been taught that the Bible is the final word. You wouldn't have been taught that if the Bible says it, it's a million percent true and that there are no errors. You would have never been taught that stuff. But if you were brought up in an evangelical church, you would have been taught that hard, hard, hard over and over and over. So it just depends on where you're coming from. So some people, if you, if you buy into what we're talking about today, you might have to unlearn some things about the Bible, and others might have to press into learning some, some new things. So is there a particular way of reading and interpreting the Scripture that is still really valid that might be a positive way forward for us? And then I want to give you one or two examples. First off, the way that uh, I personally believe of interpreting and reading the is what we would call an overarching narrative approach. And what, what I mean by that is understanding that there are, or there is, a particular thread that runs through the Scripture. Starting in the book of Genesis and running all the way through the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the wisdom literature, through the New Testament, the Gospels, through the book of Acts, through the epistles, all of Paul's letter, all the way through Revelation, there is a particular thread that runs through overarching narrative and the narrative ultimately is that God is good that God creates creation that God loves creation that God creates human beings to be part of that ongoing creation of co-partnering with God that there are forces and powers that come into play that desire to derail God's good plan and God does everything in God's power to make sure that God conquers dark forces, empires, powers that be, that we might continue in a way of reconciled, merciful, gracious, generous relationship with the divine creator. Ultimately, we're intended, human beings are intended to be kings and queens that rule with God over creation. This is the thread. It runs all the way through. We can find it if we begin to just look all the way through the scripture, starting in Genesis 1. I would argue that the Bible is absolutely an inspired book. Inspired. But not inspired in the way that there was like this little voice sitting on every writer's shoulder saying, okay, and now write this. But more like inspired as in what we get in the scripture are people, just like you, just like me, who are wrestling with God, trying to figure out life, and this is their account of how 
they interact with God and how God interacts with them. It's this idea that the Bible, the Bible is a human product, but it's a reality and it's an experience of human beings interacting with the divine. And they, they write down their journeys. That's why the Bible can oftentimes seem so contradictory to itself. Not only seem, but it is contradictory to itself oftentimes. Because people are writing their stories about what God is doing in their place, in their time, in their lives. One author says that the Bible is what you get when God lets his kids write his story. I, I, I think this is, because think about this. No matter how inspired Nathan is, Nathan's 12, if Nathan were to write the story of his dad, everything he knows about his dad, if he were to write that story today and then give it to you and say, this is everything you need to know about my dad, I would certainly hope that you would take it with a grain of salt. Because he's only 12 and he doesn't know everything there is to know about his dad. And when he's 18, he would write a little bit more. He would have a more full version. And when he's 40, he would have a more full version. The Bible is ultimately, we can trust it in the fact that it's the ground in which the world of Christians live. This is, this is, this is our heritage. This is our history. This is where we come from. Jewish people have been worshiping God for thousands of we come from, from that lineage. And Christ has come as a Jewish person to redeem and to restore and to break the powers of darkness. And we can see how Christians who follow Christ for hundreds of years have, have continued to go down this pathway. But we also need to understand that the, the Bible, it's got some history in it. It's got lots of metaphor in it. It's kind of hard, and you can go where, whichever way you want to go with this. I understand that some of this is, uh, is for some people, this will be real new, and for others, you're like, yeah, I, I never thought about that anyway. But there's talking animals in the Bible. It's interesting because when you read C.S. Lewis and the um, Chronicles of Narnia and an animal talks, our immediate thought is, oh, that's a cute story. But when we pick up the Bible and an animal talks, we're kind of like, oh, wow. I don't know. So it, it, is it possible? Absolutely. Anything is possible, I believe, through God. But is that what the authors were trying to tell us? Were they trying to tell us that animals talk? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think there are other ways of interpreting the scripture, metaphorically, in some of those instances, that we I'll even show you one in just a moment's time. But there's also the historical part. What did this mean for those people at that time? What were they trying to say? What would they have understood the scriptures to be saying? All of this is so important in how we read the scripture. And let me tell you why. Because in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about prayer and why pray. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about does God know everything? Some people will say, absolutely. And there are actually scholars, theologians on the other side of the coin who are like, well, maybe God intentionally chooses not to know everything. And both of these people are like well-respected in the Christian community, both of these scholars. What does God say about same-sex relationships? Listen, the reason this is so hotly debated today is because people interpret the scriptures differently. 
And neither one is necessarily wrong. Some of these things you just can't get around. It, it, we have to figure out something about the scripture. The last thing I would say, and then I want to look at a couple of examples here, but is that the Bible was never intended to be proscriptive, meaning or prescriptive, meaning it's prescribing a way to live, as it was to be descriptive, describing how people have forever lived with God. It's a descriptive book. It's a description of what it looks like to live on this journey with God. So let, let's look at one or two examples, and then uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll shut it down so you can go finish watching the women's soccer match. I know that's important to some. Let me, let me tell you how this works, just one, one example. In Genesis chapter 1, you may or may not know this, but you, you can jot this down, make a mental note. But Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, Verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. This account is believed to have been written in 500 B.C. Okay, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. In the very first creation account, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, it's, that's the passage you're probably most familiar with. In the beginning, God did this, 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 and it says he, God created for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. On the sixth day, God created human beings. So it's like God created all of creation, and then on the final day, God created human beings. Scholars believe that that chapter of the Bible was written in 500 B.C. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, is a second creation account. Scholars believe that it was written in 900. So there's four, four, 400 years between these two chapters when they were written, and they were both stuck in the Bible. But what's interesting in the other creation account, the one that begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says in here, I'll read this to you, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, there was no plant, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was work to be done, so God formed man from dust. In this creation account, human beings are created first, and then shrubs, and then animals, and all these other things. These are two very contradictory accounts. So if we were to say the Bible, it just, as it is, it is a 100% factual, historical account, everything in it is 100% without error, there's nothing wrong with it, then we would have to say, well, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, those two stories contradict each other completely. So what are we going to do about that? Well, we have, to, we have to start thinking through how, what and why and how was it written. And the Genesis account, understand at this time when these books were written, when those accounts were written, all the other nations had their own creation accounts. The Babylonians had their creation account. The Assyrians had their creation account. The Egyptians had their creation account. The Jewish people knew all of those creation accounts, and they were at a point in time where they were like, we need our own creation account. But our creation account is different because we believe in Yahweh, and we believe that Yahweh acts differently than all the Egyptian and the Assyrian and the 
the Babylonian gods, and where the Egyptian, the Assyrian, the Babylonian gods, where they put humans down under, under the thumb, and they worship the sun, and they worship the moon. Our creation account says, and then on the fourth day, he created two lights, one to govern the day and one to govern the night. And in that little simple saying, without calling it the sun and the moon, what they were doing was they were degrading the value of the sun and the moon. They were like, the sun and the moon, these aren't gods. There's only one God. There's only Yahweh. And our God doesn't need to create sun and moon. He just creates lights, one to govern the day and one to govern the night. It was a direct like assault on this idea of the God Ra, the sun god. Say, oh, it's just a, it's just a light in the sky that our God created and placed there and allowed to be. If we go this route, we start to understand one of the questions was about uh, how it, this was the question. If everything starts in Genesis 1, where are the other things? Prehistoric man, dinosaurs, things like that. We have proof of their existence, but no mention of it from the beginning when God started to create in those first six days before he rested on the seventh. Did they exist before that millions of years ago? Or is Genesis 1 an overarching account of who God is, who people are in the grand scheme of things as co-creators with God. It's not trying to give us a historical account of when things were created. See, if you only go by the Bible, the earth, if you only go by the Bible, the earth is only 6,000 years old. But science clearly tells us that the earth is more than 14 million, is it million or billion, years old. So do we have to check our brain at the door and be like, well, God gave these scientists amazing brains and amazing ability to research, but we're not allowed to. Okay, thank you. But we're not allowed to use it. No, we, we tap in. We, we use it. We, we experience it. We, we press into it. We, we thank God for it. And we don't have to, it doesn't have to conflict if we understand that the story is not trying to tell us the earth was made 6,000 years ago and on the fourth day God created the sun. Does that, you see what we're saying there? So we, we just, we, we can begin to, to wrestle with this and maybe there are other ways to read it. One other example I would give you is in uh, Colossians chapter 3. And this is, this is another, here's, here's a reason why history matters. Here's a reason why reading uh, with a critical mind matters. Colossians chapter 3 verse 22. The Apostle Paul and now I say, slaves, obey your earthly master in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Work whatever you do. Work at it with all of your heart as though you were working for the Lord and not for human masters. Okay, now clearly, clearly today we would agree Got it. Clearly today, we would agree that slavery is bad. But one of the greatest writers of all time who gave us most of the scripture in the New Testament didn't say that. Instead said, slaves, do whatever your master says. And there's another time where he says, and masters, at least treat your slaves with dignity. Do you realize the reason that slavery lasted so long is because preachers and Christians were using those, that scripture to justify having slaves? And today we would have to agree that they were using the scripture 
correctly if that's how we're supposed to read the scripture. But that's not because even Paul himself was on a journey. Paul lived in a time when this is the only thing that would have made sense to him. But we know that God is a God that's he's, he's always, there's a trajectory to God's, God is bringing people along. God is saying, no, come on, you're stuck. You're stuck in a, in a place. Come on. I mean, if Paul would have lived 30 more years and written another letter, there's a very good chance he would have said, oh, and when I wrote to the Colossians, listen. Forget that. Set your slaves free. This is ridiculous. This is God's kingdom. There's a, there's a movement to it. So it's this understanding that we, we come to the scripture, but we have to bring a critical mind. We have to bring a critical mind. We, we read it between us and the Holy Spirit, but then we have to. Guys, we have to do this if we really want to press into Scripture. If we really want to understand what God's saying, we have to do this. And then we have to do this in smaller groups. Uh, one of the greatest things we have going on right now is our small group with the book that we're reading, Christianity Beyond Belief, because we can sit at a table. There's about eight people. We're reading the book, and then we're like figuring out, okay, what do you think here? What do, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think God's saying? What do you think God's saying? And it's, it's, we come to a place where we're like, you know what? Once you said it out loud, Wendy, it makes me realize, yes, God's probably doing something different than I've been experiencing and thinking. And maybe that's how the Spirit of God moves us and transforms us and forms us, even through using Scripture. But it's in the context of community. <laughs> No, sir. King David wrote that. But yeah, yeah. Let's come back to that. So, when we're when we're when we're reading the scripture over the next couple of weeks, this is this is all I ask. Is that you would also wrestle with the stuff that we're talking about? And listen again. You don't have to agree with the way that I interpret certain things, and I'm okay with that. If you're okay with me not necessarily agreeing with the way you interpret certain things. I want us to still, like, this is how we, we grow, and this is how we stay in community. If I say something that you've never thought to be true, then let's do the fun thing, and let's get coffee together, and let's talk about it. And I can explain to you where I'm coming from, and you can explain to me where you're coming from. And in that, maybe the Spirit of Christ does something in our lives together, pulling us deeper in connection with one another, pulling us deeper in connection with the things that maybe even God is doing. There is, a, there is a very fresh and beautiful way of interpreting the scripture, and, and I would encourage you to, to start thinking through. I love this idea that you don't have to check your brain at the door, which honestly, I was taught that for a long time. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, until I started asking like some questions. That, that seems weird. I mean, this whole there's a, there's a passage in the Psalms about God saying to smash the baby's skulls against the rocks. That doesn't seem anything like the Jesus I know. There's got to be something wrong with that. Critical thinking would be helpful here. If, by chance, this is something that really, really interests you, um, this week in the newsletter, I'm going to uh, include some fantastic books <coughs> that you might enjoy uh, reading. And so I would encourage you to pick up, and it's about how to read the Bible, and I would encourage you to pick up one of those books uh, if one of them looks interesting. I'll probably put like three or four in there just so you can uh, kind of
kind of browse them and, and think about those. But I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to take it a little bit further. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll jump into our series. Uh, we'll jump into each of these questions. I believe that next week is, if God knows everything, then why do we pray? Uh, I think that's a good question. So we'll, we'll discuss that next week. Thank you.